and judgment. So here we have two of the great people of the Bible, Elijah and Elisha. Perhaps it would be appropriate to say that Elijah was the greater. Uh, I may say that, I think, because although there were many great people in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, the two that are most mentioned in the New Testament, particularly significantly at the time that the Lord Jesus was transfigured, were Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. Now, here we have these two. Elijah has been leading the charge. If you think you're living in difficult days today, you want to live when Elijah lived. He lived in a day when the kings hated God, when the kings refused to worship God. There was a particularly wicked king called Ahab who married into a family of idolaters. His father-in-law was even named after an idol, Eth Baal. Baal was the god of the weather, the wind and the rain and the fire were all to do with Baal. And if you remember that, when you read the story of Elijah, some things that you perhaps didn't understand will make a bit of sense. Who was the God who could overcome gallons and gallons of water and still set fire to something? It wasn't Baal. Who was the God who could send fire from heaven when there was no way of lighting this soaking wet wood? It wasn't Baal. Who sent the whirlwind? To take Elijah up to be with him. It wasn't Baal. See the point of the story of Elijah. Is that it is God. Who is in control. And the point of the church today. Is to let the world know. That God is in control. So Christians really can live their lives. In the comfort of knowing. That no matter how hard the circumstances are. No matter how high inflation goes. No matter how difficult it's going to be in these coming months. And we're all going to struggle. I don't demean that. I'm, I'm not trying to put that down at all. It doesn't change the fact that God is in control. God is on the throne. But just as in Elijah's day. There are many people that don't believe it. And then many people who are putting their trust in all sorts of things, aren't they? Putting their trust in climate control. Big thing. It's like a religion to a lot of people, you know. Climate control is like a religion. They won't, they won't have any discussion about it at all. They seem to think that it must be true. No, I'm not saying that there isn't climate change. I'm not, I'm not here to argue one way or another. I'm not a scientist. But the way it's dealt with at times makes you worried. But God is in control. And God has called Elijah. And he sent him out to do battle for him. He sent him out to speak the truth. He spent, sent him out. Even at times when he was desperate. And depressed. And brought low. God took him away. Sat him down. Gave him breakfast in bed. Lifted him up. Said go and see. I'm still in control. And Elijah remembered that. And went. And God said to him. And my work doesn't end with you, Elijah. 
here's three people I'm going to introduce you to, and they're going to carry on my work. Now, that's not part of my sermon, so I haven't got time to deal with all that. But one of the three was Elisha. And now we come to see how God intends to use Elisha and why Elisha was ready to be used by God. So here we find Elisha, who's been a committed follower of God and a disciple of Elijah for some time. You can read how he became a follower in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19. But we haven't got time to deal with that either. But as he's been with Elijah, Elijah, he's seen all the things that Elijah has been doing as a courageous servant of God in terrible days of idolatry. But now, and the Bible doesn't tell us everything, does it? We have to remember that. Some people think the Bible should explain itself all the time. It doesn't. There's a very famous verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. God doesn't tell us everything. Why should he? Do you tell your children everything, the parents here? You, you have a certain amount of control, don't you? Certain things you don't tell them. God doesn't have to tell us everything. And we don't know why Elijah knew that his time on earth was coming to an end. But he did, didn't he? It's quite clear that he knew something was going to happen. And so he, he says to Elijah, stay here. I've got to go and do something else. And, oh no, says Elisha, because Elisha knew as well. How? I don't know. But he did. And what happens now shows us grit. The faith that perseveres. Have you got it? It's a question I want to ask yourself. As you read this passage, have you got it? The faith that perseveres when the going gets tough. So I want you to think now that even as Elijah that great prophet of God is about to be taken away. God is preparing someone to take his place. There was a time in our country that some of us, particularly people of my age and older, who have a certain doctrinal understanding, thought, how will we ever replace Dr. Lloyd-Jones? But the church didn't die when Dr. Lloyd-Jones died. And the gospel didn't die. And the gospel has been going on for 42 years since he was taken to glory and will continue on. And the Lord raises up other men throughout the country. And sometimes we get the same with our pastors. We begin to think that if our pastors are gone, the Lord, the church will fall and fall apart. But no, it won't. Because it doesn't depend on men. It depends on God. But God does use men and women for his glory. So let's just think about Elisha's actions in faith here. He has spiritual awareness. He knows what's going on. He understands. And so all these people are coming along to him trying to give him advice... And he's not put off by it at all. He keeps, he says, I know, it's okay. You see, what comes out to me as I read this 
is Elisha knows that Elijah is going, but it hasn't broken him. It hasn't made him think that the whole of the church, as it was in his day, is going to fall apart now, that this battle against these forces of evil is going to come to an end now when Elijah's taken. He doesn't think that at all. I know he's going, he said. At this point, there's no indication that he knew how he was going, just that he was going. And so he keeps following. And when Elijah tries to tell him to wait, in various and these places were important places, you know. It wasn't as if Elijah could have said to him, I'll oh, just stay here and have a rest. I mean, you might have noticed that it talks about the sons of the prophets. They were Bible colleges, if you want to put it. That's the way we would best understand it. The sons of the prophets weren't literally children of other prophets. They were the students in the Bible colleges, if you want to bring it up to date. And somehow, Elijah, in the midst of all this terrible sinfulness, had managed to establish these two places where he was training men to go on with the work. And they were there. So they were important places. And he could say to Elijah, stay here and spend some time with these sons of the prophets. Do a bit of teaching. I've got to go on somewhere else, okay? Now, that would seem perfectly reasonable, wouldn't it? But Elijah, Elisha knew there was something important happening. And he was going to stick with Elijah, whatever happened. And he showed tremendous grit to do that. How do you fancy walking 25 miles in a day with one of the Lord's prophets? That was at least the length of the journey. 25 miles from Gilgal to, to, Jericho, to, uh, to Bethel to Jericho, 25 miles at least, and then on to Jordan. Like the Royal Marines, isn't it? Yomping through the, the, the islands. But uh, these prophets were tough guys, weren't they? And so they went on. And Elisha said, oh no, I'm not leaving you. This makes me think of those races that you see on the track. And the person in second place is just staying there close to the person in first place and the, the person in first place is trying to accelerate and drop them off but the person in second place is not going to be dropped he hangs on in there and that's what Elisha is like he sticks at it and I think the lovely picture is when do you remember those two brothers crossed the line after a marathon holding hands and they crossed the line together and I think that's sort of the picture we're given here and Elisha sticks in there have you got that sort of stickability? That sort of ability and determination to stay the course? This is the Lord's work. Doesn't matter about Elijah in the end. I love Elijah. Elijah has been everything to me in many ways. But it's the Lord's work. And I'm going to stick at it. And so he, he grits his teeth and sticks with him right until the end. And he sees him taken up to glory. Now, I'd love to talk about that, but I haven't got time. Just suffice it to say that Elijah is one of the people in the Bible, and not the only one, who didn't die. was taken to heaven without dying. And the reason God gives us these pictures is so that we might know that one day we'll go to heaven, and then we'll live forever. That, that there is a hope beyond the grave. In the Old Testament, the hope wasn't very clear. But in the New Testament, it's very clear. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. I was at a funeral on Friday and those words were read and they made my heart rejoice again. 
because as a Christian I shouldn't fear death whether I will or not when it comes I don't know I trust I won't I trust that I'll put my hand in the hand of Jesus and he'll take me as he will for all his people into his presence and the chariots and horsemen well I think that's Elijah okay you can argue about that later I think what he's talking about when he says when Elisha says my master my lord the chariots and horsemen of Israel I think he's talking about Elijah there I think he's saying you have been the chariot and horsemen of Israel you have been the Lord's army (coughs) in this great battle and now you're going and interestingly I can't remember the verse but it's about chapter 8 or chapter 9 a bit further on in 2 Kings when when Elisha is on his deathbed the king of Israel says you have been the chariot and horsemen of Israel so that's what I think okay pass over that quickly and so he begins his new ministry and how does he begin it well he begins it by asking for something what does he ask for he says I'd like a double portion of your spirit does that mean twice as much do you want do I want twice as much power as Elijah <laughs> some hope no he's not saying that at all if you know your Bibles who got the double portion the oldest son that was the reality the oldest son got the double portion and that's what Elisha is saying you've been a father to me I've been like an eldest son to you give me the inheritance and what's the inheritance the inheritance is the blessing of serving God in the power of the Holy Spirit and so he picks up the mantle and he begins his ministry by doing the same thing that his father had done you know there are so many people that keep telling me we have to change the Bible no we don't the message is the same now I'm not saying we haven't got to be culturally up to date of course we had I'm very glad I don't have to wear a tie in many churches nowadays I spent my lifetime wearing ties in work and in church and it's great now that doesn't matter does it who cares but you know some people think that we've got to do more than that. We've suddenly got to make the Bible amenable to the world we live in. So that people don't get upset by it or offended by it. I'll tell you something. If people don't get upset or offended by the Bible, they'll never be saved by it. Because if you don't know you need to be saved or what you need to be saved from, you won't be saved. And that doesn't change so that the message of Elisha wasn't going to change and he comes back to the Jordan and he does exactly the same as Elijah had done in parts of Jordan now if I had a long time we could go back and look all the way back to when the people of Israel first came into Jordan what happened God parted the Jordan for them now the nation was in such a state of sin that Elijah made the journey out of Israel and across the Jordan, back to where they were in captivity. Okay? And now Elisha picks up the baton and comes back across the Jordan again and into the city with the message of the grace of God to the people. 
So the ministry is the same ministry. And he goes to the same places. He goes back and, and it's the same journey that people made out of captivity. In the end of Deuteronomy, the beginning of Joshua, it's the same journey. And the message is this. You can be freed from captivity but end up captive again. But in the grace of God, he will bring you out again. He will bring you out again. Perhaps there's someone here today who, who is a believer but has allowed themselves to get caught up in things that they shouldn't be caught up in. And you're thinking, what am I going to do? Well, God will bring you out of it. God will be merciful. God will be gracious. And God will bring you out. So, grit. The ability, the determination to go on no matter how big the disappointments. Then grace. And we're going right to the end of the story now. We're going to verses 19 and following. And we're leaving out some bits. The grace that saves. Verses 19 to 22. The men of the city of Jericho, that is, said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasing, pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast the salt in there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Grace. Outward appearances often belie the truth. See, the city of Jericho had lots of lovely things about it. There were lots of beautiful things about Jericho. But yet, it had a real big problem. It was under the curse of God. When the people of Israel were brought into the promised land, Jericho was the first city that fell. It was a city that stood against them. It was a Canaanite city. It was a city full of the most horrible things. We never should forget that. It was a horrible city. And horrible things were done in it to men and women and children. And God judged it. And God cursed it. And he said, cursed be the person who rebuilds this city. And it wasn't rebuilt for 500 years. And then you can read about the person who rebuilt it in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. His name was Hillel. And just as God had said, he lost his two sons in the building of the city. It was a cursed city. And the curse was seen in the water. The water seems to be foul, and the, the, the words in the Greek imply causing miscarriages and barrenness. So it was a really horrible place in that, that regard. It had real problems. So weird, isn't it? Beauty and horror in the, in the same place. But we find a Bible college there. 
we find that Elijah goes to this cursed city, this terrible place, and he begins to train people to preach God's word to this city. And it seems that by this time that Elisha comes to the city and the people come to him and say, we need God's help. You see, they realized that the disaster was their responsibility and the history and their history's responsibility and they needed repentance and so they had repented and that's why they come to Elisha and they say will you help us and of course Elisha will help them of course he will and you know in the first sermon of the new church in Acts chapter 2 what happens Peter preaches people come to him and say what are we going to do to be saved? And Peter says, well, you need to trust God. You need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to come to Jesus Christ saying, without you, I can't make it. Will you save me? And he will. Now you might say to me, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Wasn't he a failure? He died. On a cross. Well, here we've got a picture, which is a bit weird, isn't it? Elijah says, go and get me a new bowl. And they bring him this brand new bowl just made. And he says, get some salt, will you? Oh, that's just the thing to make water better, isn't it? A bowl full of salt. Just what you do, isn't it? If you wanted to make water taste better, put a bowl full of salt in it. Oh, no, don't think so. And he goes to the source of the water, wherever that was. It must have been fairly close by. There's a place in Oxfordshire where the Thames bubbles up out of the ground. You know that? You can actually see it. The beginning of the River Thames. And it's just a strip of bubbles coming out of the ground. He goes to the source and he pours in this bowl full of salt. It might have been a big bowl, I don't know. But he pours it in. Weird. And it works. Was it the bowl? Was it the salt? Or was it, thus says the Lord? This is what God says. And the point, I think, is that Elisha was using a visual aid. He was just showing these people that if you're going to be with God, it has to be new. And God will do that which stops corruption. And that's what salt. So in the New Testament, we find Jesus telling people they need a new life. We find the Apostle Paul telling people that they're a new creation in Christ Jesus. We find Jesus saying, behold, I make all things new. See, the Bible doesn't want to patch up your old life. God doesn't want to patch up your old life. He wants to give you a new life. He's not interested in fixing the old damaged life. He wants you to have an entirely new life in which you serve him with joy and trust him and live for him. And these people in, Jew in Jericho had a new life. From the next day they could go out and stick their cup in the water, whatever they had, pull out a glass full of it or a plastic, uh, not plastic, uh, clay pot full of it and swig it down just like that, which they never would have done before. They could do it. Because God had healed the water. And suddenly, come to the waters, you who have no money, and drink freely, God says to you. 
and to me. Come. This is grace. They didn't do anything for it. They just trusted the word of God. I wonder if you would have been the first person to go to the stream after, it, after uh, Elisha had poured the salt in and he stood there and there all around him, all the crowds, and said, right, who's going first? Who's going to be the first to pick up the clay cup and go and take a drink of that water? I wonder if you would have been the first. Hmm? But as Christians, we all have to come to the water. And the water is the water of life. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit who gives us life if we trust in Jesus Christ. Time's gone. Last thing, judgment. Got this weird little bit at the end where these youths, it's not children, it's young people, teenagers. Terrifying thing in London today, isn't it? I'm glad I don't live in London. All the young people I hear of being stabbed. and It's just awful, isn't it? You break your heart. Think of all those teenagers. So, these were not children, these were teenagers. And they came from a city, Bethel, which since the time of King Rehoboam, when the nation of Israel had an re internal rebellion, since that time it had been a centre of idol worship. He placed a golden calf there. Said, don't need to go up to Jerusalem, you can worship here at this golden calf. Oh, and they could have played games with it and say, well, we're not really worshipping the calf, we're worshipping God. You shall not make unto yourself any graven image, said God. Not all religious activity is acceptable to God. Not even coming to Belvedere, Strict Baptist Chapel, or whatever you're called nowadays, I don't know, on a Sunday, is necessarily acceptable to God. Have you come to worship God? Have you come to hear his word? Have you come to sing his praise? Or for one of another reasons that has nothing to do with God? Not all religious activity is acceptable to God. And then it teaches us that age and experience or the lack of age and experience does not excuse ridicule of God and his servants. There's a warning here. These youths may have been encouraged by the leaders of the idol worship. That's what I suspect. I can't prove it, of course, because God doesn't tell us everything. But what would have sent them out on the road when the prophet was walking along the road if somebody hadn't planned it? Go on. Go and laugh at Elisha the prophet. So they do. And what they actually say is, why don't you do the same as Elijah? Go up. That's what they're saying. They're not mocking him. Go on, you do the same as Elijah. Clear off. Get out of our country. Get out of our land. We don't want you here. And they were either mocking Elijah's removal to heaven, didn't believe it, or they were mocking Elisha, the prophet of God, and saying, get out of our town. 
There once was an ugly duckling. Get out of our town. But just as they learned a lesson in that little fairy tale, while these young men learned a lesson. The sins of the fathers visited on the children. Parents have responsibility for their children. Where were the parents of these young people? These young men, where were they? Were they taking any responsibility for them? But God is patient. But not forever. God is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But not forever. And so what do we see here? Verse 24. So he turned round and looked at them. And I think we would be justified in putting a pause in the Bible there. I think he turned round and looked at them. And there's more than one reason for that. First reason might have been he turned around to look at them and said, I'm not frightened of you. You don't frighten me. Why would you frighten me? I am the servant of the Lord God Almighty. And then I think he looked at him as if to say, boys, stop it, go home. This is a mistake. Don't do it. Go home. But they didn't. And they carried on. And then we're told this strange thing. Two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. It doesn't say he killed them. It says mauled them. I want to take you back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus chapter 26. I just want to read two verses. Verse 21, this is God speaking. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock and make you few in number and your highways will be desolate. Now that was part of the covenant of God. God made a covenant with his people and God made his promises of what his commitments under the covenant were and he made his people promise what their commitments under the covenant were and God said what the consequences would be if they didn't keep the covenant. And the New Testament says to everybody in this room from the preacher to the youngest person here don't be deceived God is not mocked whatever a man sows that shall he also reap so which city fits your circumstances are you in Jericho You've seen the disaster, you've seen the curse, you know what it is to be under the curse, but you've turned and you've seen the grace of God in Jesus Christ and you've trusted him. Most unusual way of saving anyone, but it's the way that God intended. He sent his son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. Have you come to him like a Jericho? Or are you like those young people from Bethel? Maybe you're not as outward as them, as up front. You're not shouting, well, you wouldn't shout bald head at me, would you? But in your heart, you're saying this is a load of nonsense. I wish this bloke could get out of that pulpit and clear off. Well, let me tell you, be careful. God is not mocked and won't be mocked. But he is patient. And today, if you hear his voice, come to him.